Good morning. Uh, my name's Anna, and I'm going to be reading uh, the Bible uh, for us today. And off, we're reading two passages um, because Joe's going to be preaching from both of them in the sermon. So the first one is Ephesians chapter 2, um, verses 11 to 18. Okay, starting at verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the, the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And the second reading is from James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. And that's on page 1,214. 15. Starting at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Thanks, Anna. Good morning, everyone. Now, in the book of 1 Timothy in the Bible, the writer Paul, who writes 1 Timothy, talks about a group of people who have an unhealthy craving for controversy. An unhealthy craving for controversy. And I wonder whether you think that accurately, accurately describes the world in which we live. Now, a few years ago, Facebook um, conducted an internal review to try and work out what it was that kept people coming back to their social media platform. 
They wanted to know what content is most likely to appear on people's Facebook feeds. What is it that people want to read and watch? And this was their conclusion in their own report that they did. They said, our algorithms exploit the human brain's attraction to divisiveness. The report said that the algorithm is designed to deliver more and more divisive content in an effort to gain user attention and increase time on the platform. In other words, the Facebook business model is built on the assumption that we as human beings have an unhealthy craving for controversy. They found that divisive content makes more money for them than peace-filled content. I wonder if you've noticed that trend if you're on social media, that the angry clash on the Wimbledon tennis court will get more attention than any reconciliation that happens in the dressing room. When we live in a world like this, conflict and division can easily feel normal or expected or perhaps strangely attractive. You know, what keeps us coming back to those videos and those articles? And yet we're also deeply aware, aren't we, of the existence of really painful conflict and division, unwanted division in our world. Whether that's conflict close to home, in our marriages, or in our families, or in our workplaces, or in our friendships, or whether it's conflict on a national scale or an international scale. So I want to pose a question to you this morning. How should we respond when our lives and our society increasingly feels so fractured and fragmented and disconnected and divided? I read a quote from one politician this week who said, we've had enough of division. Politics at its best is a unifying endeavor. Is politics the answer? I listened to another person on the radio this week describing their experience of meditation, and he describes the inner peace that comes as you slow down and control your breathing and tune out distractions. And he went so far as to say that meditation will be the means of bringing universal peace to our world. Is that the answer? Well, this morning we're going to explore the Bible's teaching on peace, and we're going to see that the Lord Jesus is a bringer of peace, the bringer of peace, real peace, genuine peace, eternal peace, and that only in him can we begin to live a fruitful life of peace ourselves in our relationships, in our families, in our church, in our workplaces, in our world, and for our eternities. We're going to think about two aspects of peace this morning from those two uh, passages that we heard read. Firstly, knowing peace, and secondly, pursuing peace. So firstly, knowing peace. If you could turn back to Ephesians chapter 2 with me, that would be really helpful. Uh, Page numbers again are on the screen. Page 1174. Now, Ephesians 2 is a great place to go to to think about um, peace. And a key statement is there in verse 14. Have a look at it with me. There in verse 14, Paul talks about Jesus Christ and says, He himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. We're going to unpack that statement together from Ephesians chapter 2. And the way Paul is going to make his case is to show us the before and after situation for God's people. We have the formally in verse 11, the situation as it used to be. And then we have the contrast in verse 13, but now. So let's take these two in turn. What was life like? in former times for the Ephesian Christians. Have a look um, at verse 11. 
Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now you see first off that Paul is making a distinction here between uh, two different groups. We've got the Gentiles by birth and the Jews by birth, the uncircumcised and the circumcised. These are the two clearly marked groups in the first century world. And you see that Paul's focus here is on the Gentiles before they knew Jesus. And he says that they were separated and hostile. Separated and hostile. We see the separation firstly in verse 12. He says, at that time you were separate from Christ. They're described as without hope and without God in the world. I had quite a scary 10 minutes a few weeks ago when Sophie, our eldest daughter, was separated from us when we went on a walk in Hesham. She ran off ahead to explore. Um, we lost her. And then I ran off to search for her while um, Natalie, my wife, stayed um, to see whether she'd come back to where we were. And if you've had this experience, either as a parent or as a child, then you probably experienced something like I did. The first couple of minutes, you know, just relatively calm, thinking, you know, she'll be back anytime soon. I'll find her in a minute. It just gets more and more stressful the longer you go on. For a parent and for the child, it's horrible to be separated. She, she did come back. I did find her. <laughs> Now, for the Gentiles in Paul's day, their separation was even more tragic because to be cut off from the Jewish nation meant that they were cut off from the promises of God, as we see in these verses, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and therefore not enjoying, not sharing in the wonderful blessings that come for those who know God, alienated, separated. But more than that in these verses, hostile, the Gentiles are not just passive victims, but active rebels. Imagine Sophie not just running off to play, but running off in rebellion against her parents, wanting nothing to do with us, hating us in her heart and running away as far as she could. That's more the picture here. The end of verse 16, if you look at it with me, describes it as hostility, hostility towards God. And the Bible says that we cannot understand the conflicts in our world without understanding this conflict in the human heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Welsh preacher in the 20th century, writes this. He says, The explanation of all our troubles is human lust, greed, selfishness, self-centeredness. It is the cause of all the trouble and the discord, whether between individuals or between groups within a nation or between nations themselves. He's saying that the problem lies in the human heart. We are by nature hostile to our creator. And all the controversy and division we see in our world flows from the fact that human beings have turned inwards rather than Godwards. But this is not the only hostility we see in these verses, is it? I wonder if you notice the other hostility. The problem is not just between human beings and their God. There's also hostility between human beings. And in particular, there is deep-seated hostility between the Jewish nation and the Gentile world. Now, sometimes you'll have noticed that inside and outside groups are formed when people begin to assign labels to one group and another label to themselves. Sometimes that is a good thing to demarcate who you are. Other times, that's a way of distancing yourself from others or even deriding others. 
And that seems to be the problem in verse 11. The Jews describe Gentiles as the, the uncircumcision, and they call themselves the circumcision. There's a very clear inside group and outside group, and the feeling was mutual. There was mutual hostility between the Jewish nation and the Gentile world. So do you see that the problem in these verses is twofold, and the problem is deep? There is hostility between human beings and God, and there is hostility between Jew and Gentile. And so for Jesus to be our peace, we begin to see what it will mean for him to achieve it. We need the breaking down of the hostility between humans and God. That is fundamental. But we also need an end to the hostility between Jew and Gentile. We cannot have one without the other. That was the former situation for the Gentiles until we get to verse 13 and the but now. So have a look at verse 13 with me. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. These verses explain why Jesus is our peace. And do you see that it centers on the death of Jesus? Verse 13, it's the blood of Christ. And verse 16, it's the cross of Christ. In verse 13, it's the blood of Christ that has brought near those who were once far away. If the problem was hostility towards God, then we needed God to offer forgiveness, to pay the price for our sin and rebellion, and to restore us to a right relationship with himself. That is what he's done by the blood of Jesus. His blood was poured out for our forgiveness, and hostile sinners can now be cleansed and restored to a right relationship with God. You might be here this morning looking into the claims of Jesus Christ, and you haven't yet come to trust in him for your forgiveness. Well, this is the call God makes to every one of us, every person in this world, to lay down our weapons, to stop warring against our creator, and to come and receive his forgiveness through Jesus. It's a call to those who are far away, in verse 17, the Gentiles. And it's a call to those who are near, who were equally rebellious against God, the Jews. Through Jesus, both groups can now have access to the same Father by the one Spirit. Do you see that God's work of reconciliation in these verses is not just about individuals being brought to know their God? This is one new humanity being brought to God together. We see that in verse 14. Jesus has made the two one. Jew and Gentile, once divided, now one through the work of Jesus. The barrier between them is destroyed and the hostility is done away with because they are now right with God in exactly the same way through faith in Jesus Christ. One writer describes this as the forming of a third race. The forming of a third race. There's now a new reality that transcends all cultural and ethnic divides. It's the reality of people reconciled to God in Christ. So there's no such thing for Paul as solo Christianity. It's not just that God makes peace with me, although that is true. This is God 
bringing together a new people now reconciled to God. Here is a foretaste of where the world is heading, where God will bring all things together under Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, I hope it reminds you of the new state of affairs that God has brought about for you. You now have peace with God through Jesus if you've trusted in him. The hostility has been removed. Your sin has been paid for in, in its entirety. The guilt is done away with. God is not secretly angry with us in heaven. He's not still at war with us. He's not lurking in the wings ready to sign up, uh, tear up the peace treaty. He has made enemies, his friends, and he has lavished on his friends countless blessings in Christ. So through faith in Jesus, we know peace with God. But through Jesus, we also now know peace with one another. I want you to imagine, just thinking back to this time when Paul was writing, the change that would have begun to happen in the first century as people understood this message that Paul was proclaiming about peace in Jesus. Just imagine now uh, two groups coming together into one church family. God doesn't say, okay, I've saved the Gentiles. Now Gentiles, go and set up a Gentile church over there. Or I've saved the Jews. Now Jews, go and set up a Jewish church over there. No, his very purpose was to bring them together. And so now you've got Jewish Christians making their way to the Gentile part of town to join this new Christian church. Two groups, once divided and hostile, having nothing to do with one another, being separate in the temple system, now walking into church together, sitting side by side to hear the Bible taught enjoying lunch around the same table, serving side by side, sharing in one another's needs, praying for one another, caring for one another, bearing one another's burdens. We now have Jewish and Gentile Christians much more aware of what unites them than what divides them. Are you beginning to get a sense of the fullness of peace that Christ came to bring? He brings a very real end to the very real hostility through the cross. That's why Paul can say the words of verse 14, Christ himself is our peace. And if that is the foundation of our peace with God, an end to the hostility, reconciliation with him, and peace with one another, reconciliation with one another, then the next question is, how do we then grow in peace? How do we grow in peace? One writer says that nothing is known until it reshapes the life. And so if we know that truth about Jesus, what will it look like to have our lives shaped by it? In other words, how can we pursue peace? I was in the Lancaster University Library um, this week, doing a bit of work up there, and found a book on mindfulness that I thought, I'm just going to dip into this book and, and find out what's behind this growing phenomenon. The tagline of the book was, A Practical Guide to Finding Peace in a Frantic World. The author's promise in that book to teach the reader the secret to sustained happiness, and I quote, the kind of happiness and peace that gets into your bones and promotes deep-seated, authentic love of life, seeping into everything you do and helping you to cope more skillfully with the worst that life throws at you. Now, do you see um, that the peace that is being talked about there is a sense of inner peace, a tranquility and calm that might allow a person to tackle life with new skill? It's inward. It's subjective, and it's often variable. But the piece we've been talking about in Ephesians so far is something quite different, isn't it? It's something objective and concrete and real. In one sense, this is something we cannot grow in. We have peace with God. We have peace with one another. It's something God has given us through Jesus. 
And so what does Paul mean in Galatians 5, in that list of the fruit of the Spirit, when he talks about peace? What will it look like to grow in peace? Something that is already true of us as Christian believers. Well, one way peace is talked about in the Bible is is in a more kind of subjective sense, and I think it's quite similar to uh, contentment. There is a calm assurance that believers possess when they know Jesus and know peace with God that is rooted in Christ. It's captured in the hymn that you might know, uh, when peace like a river attendeth my way, it is well, it is well with my soul. Philippians chapter 4 talks about the peace of God that transcends all understanding that guards our minds and our hearts in Christ Jesus. We are to grow in that kind of peace, that contentment, because we know Jesus and we know peace with God. But as I've looked at peace in the context of the fruit of the Spirit, I'm I'm more convinced that Paul is talking about something a bit different to that. Just let me show you um, these verses on the screen from Galatians 5. And just look at the verses that come either side of the fruit of the Spirit. We see several works here, I think, that are opposite to peace. Galatians 5, verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Do you see just either side of the fruit of the Spirit here, all these works of the sinful nature that seem to be the opposite of peace, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. Those are peace-destroying works that produce more and more division. And so when Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is peace in the middle of this section, and I think that relational aspect is in view again, like it has been so far in this Fruit of the Spirit series. I think the horizontal is more in Paul's mind. The Holy Spirit is working now in God's people to make them peace-loving, peace-pursuing, peacemaking followers of Jesus. So this is not just the individual reality of peace with God that Paul is describing in the Fruit of the Spirit. I think it's the way that we pursue peace with one another. There are several places in the Bible we could go to explore that theme. Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, encourage one another, be of one mind, live at peace. Hebrews 12 verse 14, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. There are some places we could go to explore this theme, but we're going to spend our time in James chapter 3 that we heard read. So if you could uh, turn again to James chapter 3. I'm going to spend the rest of our time um, in, these, in these verses. Page 1,215. Now, here in these verses, you might have noticed it when um, Anna was reading it. James is contrasting two different types of wisdom, two ways to live, two different attitudes, two different motivations, two different origins for this wisdom, two radically different 
uh, things as we'll see. One is incredibly unattractive, and the other is incredibly beautiful. So let me read James 3, as we think firstly about the wisdom from below. James 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. I wonder if you can just see some of the similarities between these verses, James chapter 3 and Galatians 5 that we just read. Did you see that, again, the um, earthly, natural works, the sinful works, include envy and selfish ambition? We see it twice in these verses, in verse 14 and then in verse 16. And this way of life so often masquerades as wisdom in our world. I think school is one place where you can see this. If you're at school at the moment, you might have heard uh, being told in assemblies perhaps to pursue your dreams and to follow your ambitions. That can quickly become selfish ambition, can't it? With no regard for others. Well, we talked only about our right to live how we want to live. And anyone denying us that right is denying us our basic humanity. There we're equating wisdom with self-determination. Well, as we thought about last week, the Gauss already reminded us of, envy can lead us to constantly looking over the fence at the bigger houses and the better cars and the nicer clothes and so on. That's just how we live. But James bursts that bubble and says, in God's eyes, selfish ambition and envy are earthly. This is wisdom from below. But more than that, he says that they're hellish. This is hellish. Do you see that emphasis in verse 15? This is wisdom from the devil. It is the very essence of sin to live for ourselves and deny our creator. That's what Satan wants. And even though this masquerades as wisdom in our world, selfish ambition and envy are the enemy of peace. That's really important to see. Selfish ambition and envy are the enemy of peace, just as we saw that they were the enemy of of joy, holding us back from joy last week. If we have these things, if we live by this wisdom... It will hold us back from peace. Just glance over to chapter 4 of James to see this. Chapter 4, verse 1. James says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. Do you see? Fights, quarrels, wars, all come from this war that is raging on in our own hearts. We we covet other people's things. We desire what other people have. We want to be the center of the world, and so we fight. We see it in the home. We see it in the office. We see it in Westminster. We see it on the world stage. Whether it's an argument about who puts out the bins or whether it's two countries going to war, you will find sinful desire at the root as you can imagine, I've had plenty of time this week to reflect on my own heart as I've been uh, thinking about this. I wonder if you can see these things in your own life as uh, as I can see them in mine. We war, we fight, we try and hold on to our rights because we think that our desires are the most important thing. I've seen this, just one example, playing out in my own marriage and my own heart in, in our marriage. There are times when I know that I've hurt Natalie 
whether it's in my words or, or my actions, but I'm often so slow to ask for forgiveness. I can brood on a disagreement that we've had, thinking of all the reasons why she needs to be the one to apologize first, or the reasons why actually I'm not the one who's in the wrong. And at the heart of that is selfishness. It always leads to division rather than peace. Well, let me take the example of gossip as another peace destroyer. Why do we gossip? Well, one of the reasons surely is that it makes us feel good. If, if I have been wronged, for example, then I want to tell other people that I've been wronged. And it's much easier, isn't it, to talk about someone who has wronged us than to talk to the person who has wronged us. And so we cause more division because of our selfishness. We might perhaps think about our words in times of conflict or disagreement. Often we want to have the final word. We don't want to back down. We want to get our opinion across, even if we think we might be wrong. Why? Because in our hearts we want to promote ourselves and look good rather than loving the other person, and it holds us back from peace, and it leads to more division. We can multiply the examples, couldn't we, across marriages, within families, within friendships, within church, in the office, on social media... Our selfish hearts sow division rather than peace. James says that may have the appearance of wisdom. We might think that holding tightly to our rights is the way to get things done in our world, but James says it's of the devil. All of it leads to verse 16, disorder and every evil practice. We can see, can't we, how that hellish wisdom has broken out in our world. We can see it in our own hearts, I'm sure but it's not wise and it leads to nothing good. Which brings us to the contrast in verses 17 and 18 and the beauty of the wisdom from above. Now it's important firstly to see the origin of this wisdom. It does not come from ourselves, it does not come from the earth, it does not come from below, it comes from above. Left to ourselves, naturally we gravitate towards the wisdom, the so-called wisdom of the previous verses, but this wisdom comes from heaven It is a gift, a gracious gift of God that he gives to his rescued people. Now, if we had more time, we could explore this theme in the book of James. You could go back and listen to some of the James sermons if you wanted to from a few years ago. Um, But chapter 1, verse 18, I think, is a really helpful verse to have in mind. Just have a look on the screen at James chapter 1, verse 18. There, James says, God chose to give us birth through the word of truth so that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So he's saying that when we accept the word of truth, the the peace-bringing message of Jesus Christ that we've been thinking about, we become part of God's recreated people through Jesus. We're given new birth. God gives us a new way to walk as we reflect the family likeness, as we become more like Jesus. And that life that God has saved us to will be perfected in the new creation to come, won't it? I find this one helpful way of thinking about the fruit of the Spirit generally is to think that, or to remember that those characteristics will be ours perfectly in the new creation when we will be perfectly like Jesus. There, God's people will be perfectly loving and perfectly joyful and perfectly peaceable and perfectly patient and so on. We will be like Jesus. And as we live our lives now, we can produce the, the buds of this new creation because we've been given new birth through Jesus. We can begin living for that new age. We can possess this wisdom that comes from heaven that God gives. So all that to say, it's important to remember that this wisdom is from above. We haven't earned it. 
We cannot discover it on our own, but we are given it through the gospel when we become followers of Jesus. And if we lack it, then we need to do what James urges us to do in chapter 1 and ask God for it. So what does this wisdom look like? What is this wisdom from above? How is it different to what we've just been seeing? Well, let's look at verse 17. James writes, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Now, this is a wonderfully crafted sentence. In the original language, there is alliteration and rhyme. The the beauty of the wisdom is conveyed in the way the sentence is written. And do you see that here, we're not just given a list of things to do, but James is painting a picture of the kind of people we should be. This is about attitude before it's about our actions. He says that the wisdom from heaven is, first of all, pure. This is about being whole and undivided in our devotion. It's a big theme of James. Just as God is pure and whole, his people are to be pure and devoted to him, whole people. And this purity is then expanded on in seven different descriptions of the wise person. The wise person is a peace-loving person. In the Old Testament, you might know that the word that is often used for peace is the word shalom. That's a word that communicates much more than just the absence of war. It's about wholeness, harmony, completeness, everything in its rightful place. Order rather than disorder. A Christian longs for that completeness. They know it's coming in the new creation where there will be no more division. And they strive for it now. And one of the ways they show their love of peace is in their attitude to others. I think we see that in these next few descriptions. They are considerate. One writer describes this as being graciously amenable, being someone who is willing to yield to others wherever yielding is possible. It goes with the fact that they are submissive, verse 17. They've submitted to God, and they're now willing to submit themselves to other people, not always needing to have the final word, listening more than they speak. This person is full of mercy and good fruit. Having been shown mercy by God, they now show it to others. They're impartial and sincere, not double-minded, not saying one thing and meaning another. They're devoted to God in their hearts, their minds, and they live out that devotion in every area of life. They're impartial because they seek to avoid the tribal mentality that separates people off into inside groups and outside groups because they know that those barriers have been broken down through the cross of Jesus. Here is a person shaped by the wisdom from heaven who is humble, peace-loving, calm, considerate, someone who assumes the best of other people, someone who is not defensive or quarrelsome or touchy or harsh, but who has laid aside their own rights so that they can love others and promote peace. Now, I read this description and think, wow, that is not me. That does not describe the person I want to be, how I long that it would more and more. But I also read it and think, that is Jesus, isn't it? That is Jesus. It describes what our Lord is like, who did not act for his own interests, but who in humility laid aside his rights, humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
As we live in humble submission to him, this is the life he's called us to live, a life of peace-loving, considerate, submissive, sincere interactions with one another. Now, I think it's worth stopping and just reflecting for a moment on what, uh, what this doesn't mean, what this wisdom doesn't mean. Now, I don't think James is just describing a person who is naturally less argumentative. We need to remember in all the fruit of the Spirit that natural temperament is not necessarily the same as godly wisdom. That's true for all the fruit of the Spirit. And I don't think this is being the same, the same as being conflict-averse either. This is not the peace-at-all-cost person or the leave-me-alone person. It's not the hakuna matata mentality from the Jungle Book. No worries all the rest of our days. I was about to sing that, and I'm glad I resisted the temptation. Now, being a humble peace lover will actually mean often stepping into situations that are harsh, uh, that are hard and difficult and fraught in order to seek peace. It will mean risking being hurt and putting yourself in vulnerable situations and hard conversations because you love peace more than division. It will mean asking for forgiveness when you've wronged somebody. It will mean seeking reconciliation and being willing to make the first move, which is often so hard to do. It will mean listening well and guarding our words that we speak behind people's backs. So this is not an easygoing, weak doormat of a person. I'm sure you'll agree that to live out this heavenly wisdom so different to the wisdom from below will take great strength and great restraint and deep humility. It's a life that only comes empowered by the Holy Spirit for those who know Jesus Christ who has made peace with them. Now, of course, we also need to be realistic, don't we, about how, how far this peace can spread in our world. We're not to naively think that now Christians will simply cruise through life in perfect, peaceful relationships with perfect reconciliation on every side. That is coming in the new creation. Perfect peace will be achieved by God. But we still live with the reality of sin and selfishness, don't we? Our own sin and the sin of others. There are still people who will hate us for what we believe. There are relationships between Christians that will be fractious and difficult, which is why I find Paul's words in Romans 12 so realistic. Have a look at Romans 12, verse 17 on the screen, where Paul writes there, do not repay anyone evil for evil. I'll just wait a moment. Have we got that, Lydia? Sorry. Do not repay, we haven't got it on the screen, but just listen. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Now, I find that a very realistic and also very challenging verse. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Start living now as you will live in the new creation for all eternity. Strive to bear the fruit now that you will bear perfectly one day. As I reflect on my own life, there are situations, have been, there will be, where peace does depend on me, on me acting and doing something, where God does call me to lay down my rights and to lovingly step into situations. I can't walk away from that and think that I can avoid my responsibility to pursue peace. But also, Paul is saying in Romans 12, recognize the limits of what can be achieved now. There will be situations where we have played an active part in pursuing reconciliation, where we have talked and prayed and sought to be humble and stepped into messy situations and still peace has not come. And in those times when our enemies continue to be our enemies and where reconciliation has not yet been achieved and perhaps will never be achieved, Romans 12 goes on to say that our role is to love our enemies 
to do good to them, to speak well of them, and to overcome evil with good. It's to live like Jesus, to bear the family likeness, and to produce the buds of the new creation. Now, the result of this heavenly wisdom will be very different to the hellish wisdom from below. In verse 16, if you have a look at James 3, he says that people live like this, and you'll find disorder and every evil practice if you live by the wisdom from below. Whereas in verse 18, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So as we conclude, I just want to go back to that thought that I began with. We live in a world, don't we, that has an unhealthy craving for controversy. And the thought I want to leave you with is this. Will you be somebody, if you're a Christian believer, who has a healthy craving for peace? Will you long for the new creation, where Jesus, our peace, will return and reconcile all things to himself? And will you live now in light of that day that is coming? I wonder, will we live in such a way as a church family that people could walk into our church and notice a difference in the way that we interact with one another? Will they notice a difference in the way that we hold tightly to the truth of the gospel, but loosely to our own rights? Will they notice a difference in the way that we refrain from gossip and backbiting? Will they notice a difference in our messages on social media if they are to go through our social media feed? and the way that we seek to diffuse rather than fuel arguments? Will they notice how we are open to reason in the workplace and considerate in our dealings with other people? Will they notice the way we forgive readily when people have wronged us? Will they see in our relationships now a glimpse of the eternity to come? We need God's help in this, don't we? So we're going to pray now as we conclude that God would grow this fruit in us by his spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus himself is our peace, who has brought us near to you through his own blood shed on the cross. We thank you for the assurance of knowing that we are reconciled to you, our creator, and therefore it is well with our souls. And we do praise you, Father, so much for the work you are doing in your people by your spirit to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. We're so sorry for the ways that we walk by the hellish wisdom of the world, driven not by love for other people, but by love for self. And we ask for your help, please that we might grow in the beautiful fruit of peace. In all our interactions, please help us to be peace-loving and considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Thank you that Jesus lived this life perfectly. Thank you that he laid down his life for us. Please empower us to reflect him in our hearts, in our lives, in our church. For his sake we pray. Amen.